Hello, and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and in today's special Sydney Writers' Festival edition, I'm delighted to talk to Vivian Gornick. Vivian is a critic, journalist, essayist, and memoirist. She was a reporter for The Village Voice. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, and many other publications. She's published 11 books. The most recent and the subject of today's session is The Odd Woman in the City, published in May 2015. Vivian, welcome. Now, before we begin chatting, I wonder if I could get you to read a little bit from The Odd Woman in the City. Leonard and I are having coffee at a restaurant in Midtown. So I begin. How does your life feel to you these days? Like a chicken bone stuck in my craw, he says. I can't swallow it, and I can't cough it up. Right now, I'm trying to just not choke on it. My friend Leonard is a witty, intelligent gay man, sophisticated about his own unhappiness. The sophistication is energizing. Once, a group of us read George Kennan's memoir and met to discuss the book. A civilized and poetic man, said one. A cold warrior riddled with nostalgia, said another. Weak passions, strong ambitions, and a continual sense of himself in the world, said a third. This is the man who humiliated me my entire life, said Leonard. Leonard's take on Kennan renewed in me the thrill of revisionist history, the domesticated drama of seeing the world each day anew through the eyes of the aggrieved, and reminded me of why we are friends. We share the politics of damage, Leonard and I, an impassioned sense of having been born into preordained social inequity burns brightly in each of us. Our subject is the unlived life. The question for each of us is, would we have manufactured the inequity had one not been there ready-made? He is gay, I am the odd woman, for our grievances to make use of. To this question, our friendship is devoted. The question, in fact, defines the friendship, gives it its character and its idiom, and has shed more light on the mysterious nature of ordinary human relations than has any other intimacy I have known. For more than 20 years now, Leonard and I have met once a week for a walk, dinner, and a movie, either in his neighborhood or mine. Except for the two hours in the movie, we hardly ever do anything else but talk. One of us is always saying, let's get tickets for a play, a concert, a reading, but neither of us ever seems able to arrange an evening in advance of the time we are to meet. The fact is, ours is the most satisfying conversation either of us has, and we can't bear to give it up even for one week. It's the way we feel about ourselves when we are talking that draws us so strongly to each other. I once had my picture taken by two photographers on the same day. Each likeness was me, definitely me, but to my eyes, the face in one photograph looked broken and faceted, the one in the other of a piece. It's the same with me and Leonard. The self-image each of us projects to the other is the one we carry around in our heads, the one that makes us feel coherent. Why then, one might ask, do we not meet more often than once a week? Take in more of the world together, extend each other the comfort of the daily chat. The problem is we both have a penchant for the negative. Whatever the circumstance, for each of us, the glass is perpetually half empty. Either he is registering lost failure defeat or I am. We cannot help ourselves. We would like it to be otherwise, but it is the way life feels to each of us, and the way life feels is inevitably the way life is lived. 
One night at a party, I fell into a disagreement with a friend of ours who's famous for his debating skills. At first, I responded nervously to his every challenge, but soon I found my sea legs, and then I stood my ground more successfully than he did. People crowded round me. That was wonderful, they said, wonderful. I turned eagerly to Leonard. You were nervous, he said. Another time, I went to Florence with my niece. How was it, Leonard asked. The city was lovely, I said. My niece is great. You know, it's hard to be with somebody 24 hours a day for eight days, but we traveled well together, walked miles along the Arno. That river is beautiful. That is sad, Leonard said, that you found it irritating to be so much with your niece. A third time, I went to the beach for the weekend. It rained one day, was sunny another. Again, Leonard asked how it had been. Refreshing, I said. The rain didn't daunt you, he said. I remind myself of what my voice can sound like, my voice forever edged in judgment. That also never stops registering the flaw, the absence, the incompleteness, my voice that so often causes Leonard's eyes to flicker and his mouth to tighten. At the end of an evening together, one or the other of us will impulsively suggest that we meet again during the week, but only rarely does the impulse live long enough to be acted upon. We mean it, of course, when we're saying goodbye. I want nothing more than to renew the contact immediately. But going up in the elevator to my apartment, I start to feel on my skin the sensory effect of an evening full of irony and negative judgment. Nothing serious, just surface damage. A thousand tiny pinpricks dotting arms, neck, chest. But somewhere within me, in a place I cannot even name, I begin to shrink from the prospect of feeling it again soon. A day passes, then another. I must call Leonard, I say to myself. But repeatedly, the hand about to reach for the phone fails to move. He, of course, must be feeling the same, as he doesn't call either. The unacted upon impulse accumulates into a failure of nerve. Failure of nerve hardens into ennui. When the cycle of mixed feeling, failed nerve, and paralyzed will has run its course, the longing to meet again acquires urgency, and the hand reaching for the phone will complete the action. Leonard and I consider ourselves intimates because our cycle takes only a week to complete. So um, let's start off by talking about the nature of oddness. Now, I know this comes up for you a lot. Um, Gissing states that uh, it's the self-torture that goes by the name of respectability. Do you find this oddness um, not just something that marks you or makes you an outsider, but also a kind of freedom? Oh, absolutely. I have felt, um, I have never felt marginal, to tell you the truth, but I have felt an outsider all my life. And uh, absolutely, I, once I, once I realized that I saw myself that way, uh, and that I was going to make use of it rather than succumb to it or fear it, I felt uh, great freedom. And now the city. So after 26 years, I no longer think of myself as American as such. Um, but when people ask me where I'm from, I always say I'm a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think I want to live there again, but it's always the place I return to in dreams, as nostalgia, in my writing. Right. Um, do you think there's something about New York that, that keeps drawing us back as a sense, sense of self-identity? I think it's the major city in the world. I think it's the world capital. I think it does now, in this, in, for many years, what Paris did for people in the 19th century. It's Araby. It's, it's the place in which, to which uh, all um, gravitate because of the sense of, uh, of excitement and 
the energy, everybody uses that word energy. I guess it's true. You know, I don't, I don't feel it because I'm part of it, I guess. I mean, you know, I don't walk out in the street and feel, but I guess I do feel, I feel a charge all the time. Uh, but it's because I, I think it's because I know I'm going to walk up and down familiar streets. <laughs> but I, I really don't know. I can't speak for other cities, but it's, it seems um, I don't know who dreams of going to London or Paris now or, or Rome. Um, but everyone I meet everywhere, everywhere in the world, people want to come to New York. So I, I realize New York is the city of the century. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's this turn. And <clears throat> people all, I've lived in many other places over the years at everybody not everybody, but most people feel finally a terrible longing to go home. And I'm grateful that New York is home for me. Um, so, yeah, I do think people feel everything that matters is happening in New York. Not that it's happening alone in New York, but whatever happens in New York is going to happen in the rest of I, I, I feel it, too. <laughs> I do feel it. Um, it. It seems to me that New York almost is your kind of um, collective companion. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of people. They come into your life and out of your life, but it's almost but as New if it York were a single just, organism of those multiple. Absolutely. Yeah. No question about it. I do feel a constant connection, one that comforts me, it solaces me, it excites me. It's 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 a relief, <laughs> and and yet I was sitting in the session that you yeah. had before, uh-huh. and uh, a big room full of people, mm. and I almost got the sense that um, this too was your tribe. You know that these people who read your books, who read your books, and there are many books, and there are many people, um, are also part of kind of a collective uh, collective companionship. Well, <clears throat> you could say that. You could say that the people who respond to my work, like that room full of, of people, um, they, they seem, they, many of them always say to me afterwards, my dear, you were inspiring. So that's what it's all about. My voice, which can no doubt mingle with many other voices here and everywhere, uh, mine carries a sense of... of uh, of connection, I guess, to something that they want to be a part of. Um, you could call it that. I, I don't have the feeling that, that it is a collective. I feel they will all go back into their atomic separateness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I suppose everybody's so positive. Um, do you, right, yes. Is it right about now that you're craving Leonard? <laughs> Just for balance. <laughs> no, I can do without him for another while. <laughs> um, yes, but absolutely, eventually I want to go home and be able to speak fully and freely <laughs> to the people I know. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, the one thing about memoir, yeah. Is, and, you know, multiple memoirs in particular, mm-hmm. is that people kind of go through things with you. So they've lived through some very personal, you know, very personal yeah. in some in- instances, um, aspects of your reading. So when somebody who doesn't know you, like me, meets you, you know, it seems odd to shake your hand. I want to hug you because I feel like uh-huh. you and I have been through, you know, a couple of lifetimes. Yeah. Um, do you feel as a, as a memoirist that, you know, there's a part of you that you need to protect from that, that, you know, you need to keep yourself a little bit, you know, a little bit remote more than a little bit, not not remote, but um, um, yes, pe- yes. People often feel that when when it's when you read a writer whom you respond to, that that writer belongs to you, and you confuse the flesh and blood person with the experience of of reading. No, I don't appreciate it. 
I don't, I don't appreciate people um, lunging at me and telling me, oh, I know you so well. No, sweetheart, you don't know me no. so well. No, they know a persona. They know a persona. And right? it's a conti- in some yeah. ways it's a continuous persona. So if you read yes, one book to the is. next book, yeah, that persona so. is the same. You know, uh, yeah. We revisit the Vivian of the right. book. But it's not Once you. in Texas, I uh, read from Fierce Attachments to a group of uh, women engineers. And I thought, I got, I got into that room and I looked at them all, these washed out Texas blondes in gray, <laughs> in navy blue uh, three-piece suits. And I thought, this is going to go over like a lead balloon. But I read and uh, there was a silence at the end of my reading. And then a woman raised her hand and she said, if I come to New York, can I take a walk with your mama? <laughs> so I told her, it is not my mother you want to take a walk with. It's the woman in the pages of this book yes. whom I sweated blood to get. <laughs> yes, right. yes. She's the literary right. mama. She's, she's what I rescued from a lot of dead time. <laughs> yes. And I suppose Leonard and many other people are oh, literary course. as well. Certainly. Yes, I, I laughed when you said you wanted to audition for the part of Leonard. Yeah. I, I thought that there were probably some people in your book who don't want to audition for the part. Right. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, your, your ex. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so um, the, the other thing is that you also have this kind of conversation with books. Uh, it's yes. Not only do your readers have this conversation where they kind of imbibe your book and then take it into their body effectively, right. but you do the same in your writing. So there's this kind of a, almost a, meta, a metafictional um, narrative where you're pulling in texts as you're creating this this kind of memoir, right? And so all of these books become part of this this life. Yes, know, whether yes. it's George Gissing or Virginia Woolf, Philip Roth, right. you know, they all become part of the narrative. Yes, absolutely. In this case, they did. I didn't feel I could do without them. I felt um, I I every one of them is related one way or another to what I'm saying about the city or friendship at any given moment in the book. But somehow I felt I couldn't do without them this time around. Yeah. So did you keep, I, I know that you pulled this together, the collage, mm-hmm. um, from you know conversations that you written down, snippets, and, and various pieces that you collected, like a magpie. Over many years. Over right. many years. Mm-hmm. Did you keep journals? Were you actually writing things Once down? Once in a while. Not, not too often. There are different times in life, and I had them too in notebooks, when I did start to re- keep a journal, but I, I hardly ever stayed with it. But I did, I did have sufficient and uh, a number of them to have some material to use. Yeah. yeah. But mostly it's that I take notes on almost every conversation I had. I used to, and everything that ever happened in the street, I come home and immediately write about it, write it down. Mm-hmm. I suppose it would make for a, quite an interesting situation yeah. when we're in the middle of an argument going, oh, that was good. <laughs> Wait. I don't do that. <laughs> I have. But it doesn't I go down that. too well. <laughs> but it does take, sometimes it diffuses it. Um, so you've been criticized for not being factually true. Yeah. Um, that was in the NPR in particular I was thinking of um, in, in your memoirs. Do, do you think people often are too focused on facts, facts at all, like what actually happened? I mean, yeah. is that in, in the overall scheme of things, is that really the least important part of, of what you're creating? I don't. I think that um, no part of a memoir should be made up. Nothing should. Everything should, one way or another, have happened. Uh, on the other hand, I do think it's a, it's a form of writing whose readership is ignorant. I think they, it requires a more educated, a more sophisticated readership than one who's looking for factuality. Uh, what you want is truth. It's not necessarily. Um, to write down literally 
who said what when. Besides, who can remember? It's ridiculous. I mean, Edmund Goss wrote one of the greatest memoirs in English uh, history, and uh, he repeats conversations that took place when he was eight years old. Well, is he remembering accurately what, what he and Mama and Papa said when the, he was eight years old? No, it's very silly. Uh, but the, tr- the general truth, the feeling of truth, is what I think is required. Certainly not factuality. It's, that is not what it's all about yes. at all. Yes, and I suppose every time you go back to memory anyway, you're effectively revising it. Of course. You're changing it. Of course. Yeah. So you talk about your lifelong self-doubt. In the end, everything I know comes directly out of this lifelong self-doubt, everything, Um, and always the need to live a larger life. Um, But this yearning towards being more than what you are, the stretching into, you know, into discomfort and self-doubt, that seems to me to be your writer's work. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't complaining. I was just describing. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. I don't think it... Can, comes from anywhere else. It's 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 prodigious in its energy uh, manufacture self doubt. I think. Well, for some people, it's a killer. Um, actually, yes. Many people who have a measure of talent but don't fulfill it, they they're they're silenced by their self doubt. Mm. But but mine wasn't. Is this also partly um, what you mean by having no sits flesh? Did I say that? <laughs> yeah. Um, not, not just yeah, the ability sure. to sit at a desk, but the ability to remain satisfi- satisfied with the status quo. Spilkes, I think. No, this flesh has to do with the ability to stay with uh, production, with, with work, with work, with, with doing it. I always feel I haven't done anywhere near as much work as I should have done, and that's uh, the the, the lack of installation. And that, indeed, is no question, goes back to the self-doubt. I mean, I can sit there in the morning and my head is just all fogged up. I can't think, I can't, uh, I can't get a sentence out that makes any sense or that will lead me anywhere. That's anxiety. That's what else is it, you know? But is it also perhaps the need to walk, just the need to get up and, 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 and pick at your material? No, no it's just, just a lack of discipline. <laughs> No, just the Spielkes kicking in. It's just the Spielkes kicking in. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so let's talk about minimalism. Right. Um, you've said that stuff makes you anxious, um, but it seems to me also that your work, despite being collage, is also in some way minimalistic. I guess it is, yeah. yes. I co- I've come to see now that I've written a series of very short books over the years that um, that my bent is towards distillation. Yes, yeah. yes, distillation, condensation, you know, what yeah. in a Lorraine Niedeker sense, this condensory. Um, and is that, again, the memoirs, the memoirists' work? No. Because you've got a whole wide scope of life, which you condense into a single... Well, a memoir is just a single piece of experience shape, no matter how, how much uh, material uh, it's, it's drawing on. Um, so... No, but I mean, you know, some of the best things in the world are very short, and, and, and others, most books go on and on and on, right? And, and people appreciate them. You want the long, you want all that texture. People love living with a lot of literary texture. My bent, and therefore my obligation, is to give as much texture as I can to a short, to a short-shaped piece. Um... Yeah, I do. I, I came to see that I was a minimalist 
through Natalia Ginsburg, actually. She has been a great influence on me. She taught me. She taught me. Uh, um, she said herself, when she was growing up, she thought she was going to be an extravagant, operatic Italian writer. And then she discovered that she was really a real minimalist. Mm. And that that's, and, and I realized instantly that was me. So she taught me how to, uh, how to respect that position and how to serve it. And she taught me above all else that not a single sentence should be devoid of um, meaning and contribution to the whole, to the whole narrative arc. Mm. That no, no single sentence could, could uh, live without paying its way. <laughs> do, do you spend a lot of time polishing, revising? Oh, yeah. yeah. To, to get that yeah. that minimalist piece yeah. that really does support the thesis. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. So um, one of the things that strikes me about memoir, it, at first glance it seems just, just on a very superficial level to be indulgent. And then when you start thinking about it, it seems very generous that you, you go back and you find a way to forgive. And I don't just mean forgive. forgive. No. Well, I don't just mean forgive those you forgive people. Forgive life. But I mean forgive yourself, to actually look at yourself uh, in the past or look at the things that happened, I guess, with a kind of a sense of, of love. No, I, I wouldn't use those words. Uh, what I would say is that you gain distance. You mm. gain the, the proper distance, which every writer has to gain, whatever the, whatever the genre is. Uh, it's only that, that correct distance, not too close, not too far, in which you can understand everybody's position. Mm. That's what I aim for. Um, that, you know, to understand everybody is, is to, and that's enough. I mean, that's a lot. That's mm. a huge amount. Um, that's how the word, those are the words I would uh, use. And by distance, you do mean um, a release from those emotions that drive you to write senses that are distorting or that are, uh, you know, m m young people, students, all my students over the years, when they sit down to write about themselves and their families, it's like mommy dearest, their, their grievance um, scoring, they're, they're evening the score, they're mm. getting back, they don't even know it, but, you know, if the sentences... Uh, if they end up with somebody victimizing and somebody being victimized, you know, it's lousy. It's no good. And, and, and it's only no good because the narrator becomes unreliable. The thing about memoir writing is you have to make yourself a reliable narrator. And that means you have to unburden yourself of, uh, of angers and um, extremities of emotion that are distorting, that mm. will not let you write the story accurately. But I wouldn't use words like uh, love and <laughs> forgive. <laughs> well, they maybe, don't mean anything. Yes, maybe an habit because effectively habit, you you yes. create your characters, yeah. and these are people who you know in, in real life yeah. had a certain role. That's right, and it's an it, it's an objective role, which yeah. you then turn into a subjective role. You you inhabit their bodies, you make them real, but you also, in a way, I guess. You present them in a way that has a degree of sympathy. You give them... Oh, well, that's what I mean by yeah. understand. I yes. Mean, to understand all is not to forgive all, but to understand. Yes. yes. Yeah. That in itself gives people, everybody, dimension. Mm. Yes. So, of course. So, I, I know you're working on a book about the joy of rereading. Yeah. Um, and you spoke a little bit about some of the things that you're doing. Um, as a critic, it's hard sometimes to go back and reread because you're always focused on the new 
new books that are coming out. And so, you know, is this in a way to give yourself a mandate to go back and revisit in, in a deeper way um, some of the work that's really been... I consider rereading a vital element in the long historical life of, of, of literature, of, of us living with books. Um, a woman the other day in Melbourne sort of boasted to me that she's never reread a book in her life. She thought it was great to just keep on reading the new. But I've never had that relationship to books, and most people I know don't have that. And rereading is the meaning of the intimacy that one feels with books in which you reread at different times in your life and find that the book speaks to you in a way that's different from the way it spoke originally. Mm. And that's joy. Yes. Yes. And do you find when you're rereading some of these books that you are rereading that, that you're surprised? Oh, absolutely. And how it's changed for you? Absolutely. Mm. And then, you know, you're surprised in conversation. I can say to a friend, gee, I'm rereading this, and I can't believe it's the same book that I don't remember it at all. But in, in writing about it, you have to substantiate that those, those um, ooh and ahs, those oohs and ahs, uh, that will be a lot of work. To, yes. Yeah. Not to just ooh and ah over it, but to say why and how. Yes. And do you find by writing about it that you're actually also discovering it in a different way from the reading? Yes. It's like a second reading. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'll look forward to reading that. That's okay. all we have time for today. But Vivian, thank you so much for chatting me today. Okay. With me today. Good. Okay. Well I'm done. Glad it worked.